Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. One of the greatest gifts, or the greatest gift I've had since I've been in this program, besides my own sobriety, is a privilege of watching people come in, hopeless, struggle in here, and learn to stay sober and turn their lives around. Uh, it is said where I come from that I work best with hopeless cases, and I do because I was so hopeless when I came here. I was really in the bottom of the barrel. Uh, when I first met our speaker today, Brenda, when she struggled in here, she was totally without hope. Her spirit was broken. And it's been such a pleasure and such a privilege to watch her be able to stay sober, learn to walk tall, look the world in the eye, and take life on life's terms. When I first met Brenda, I said, Brenda, it don't have to be this way. It don't have to be this way. It don't have to be this way. Because I could identify with her. And she listened and she heard and she has struggled ever since she's been here. She's had the whole, the idea that if there's anything else that AA is to offer, she's going to have it. And she's working for it. She has come in and hit the road running. She uh, celebrates her sobriety every day by helping others. She's busy. Um, she stays busy. She, I feel today I'm very privileged to have her for a friend. She has a wonderful story, and she'll tell you about it. Brenda? Good morning, everybody. I'm Brenda alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 3rd, 1990, and my home group is the Mulberry, Florida group. It's on Friday night in Mulberry. Come see us. Uh, before I get started, I'd kind of like to thank uh, Fred and Martha and the committee for inviting me. I, this is really, really an honor to be here and a privilege. And I'd like to thank Lee and our tapers. They work really hard. And anybody who hasn't gotten involved with listening to speaker tapes, you know, a few years ago I had to work a long way from home. I couldn't get to as many meetings as I needed to, and it was hard for me. And that was when I started listening to them. And those those miles that I traveled, I listened to people tell me their stories over and over. There are people in this fellowship I have never seen that I know better than my own mother because I have listened to them so many times, the inflections in their voices, the, the way that, that they would weep and the way that they would, they would offer themselves to us. So anybody who hasn't gotten into tapes, let me encourage you to do yourself a favor. Um, and thank you all for being down here this early on a Saturday morning to listen to me. It's really exciting. I, uh, I was out on the beach this morning at sunrise at the meeting, and they were talking about gratitude. And and gratitude to me is not something we talk about. It's something we do. It is an action word, and it is 
in direct response to to what I'm willing to put into the program, willing to put into life that has been given to me, I get to celebrate that gratitude. God gives me somebody. He, you know, when I get I get a little lazy, I get a little weak, I get a little tired. I, oh, and I have so many things. You know, we all have so many things going on in our lives. And I have these things that come along, these crises, and then God gives me somebody. And it's, and it's just wonderful. There is nothing like watching a female caterpillar crawl fuzzy through the door and start to become a butterfly. There is nothing like it. It is, it is the greatest privilege any of us get. And, uh, and I get to do that. That's, that's what you all taught me how to do, and I get to do that. I was, uh, I was raised out on the West Coast. Um, my older sister and I were raised by a great aunt and uncle, and uh, it was a rather abusive environment. We went there when we were little babies. Our, uh, our parents got married when they were kids, and they just weren't able to hang together. So we went there to this this elderly aunt and uncle, and um, and it was a difficult environment for us. My sister was severely physically abused, and I wasn't. And I always thought that I had escaped that, that there was nothing that had anything to do with me in in that situation. I remember... Uh, occasionally consciously thinking that if she would just not say anything, just not fight back, just not argue, uh, that everything would be okay, those things wouldn't happen to her. Of course that's not true. And uh, I didn't know that until I was I was grown and in recovery. But because I believed that of her, that's what I did. I skulked around and uh, I didn't say much. I never met anybody clear eye to eye. I never stood up tall. I tried to hide in the shadows. I tried not to be noticed and not make waves, and uh, and it worked real well. Bad things, I thought, did not happen to people who did not get in the way. So pretty much I lived my life like that. And when I, uh, when I was about 13 years old, I had the opportunity to go visit my father in another state. My dad was a practicing alcoholic, and he wasn't home a lot, so I got out a lot. And uh, got in a little trouble, you know, when you've never been anywhere or done anything out of the backyard, climbing out the second-story windows, pretty exciting stuff. And uh, I met the young man that was to be my first husband. He gave me my first drink. And uh, my life changed. I could stand a little taller, and I could talk, and, oh, I was so clever. I could say all those really neat things, you know, that I always wanted to say and was afraid to, and uh, I could dance. Now, y'all got to understand, I could really dance. And uh, that that was my deal. That was my deal for a long time. I loved to dance. And the more I drank, the more I liked to dance. A couple of years later, I uh, I married that young man. I went back and forth to the West Coast and to my dad's place and what have you for those couple of years. And, and finally, my uh, my great aunt passed away and... I didn't know what to do. You know, when you live in an environment where people always tell you what to do, you always have somebody picking out every choice for you, then when they're not there, you certainly don't know what to do. So I went and married somebody that would do that for me. And that didn't last too long. Um, This is a long time ago. I know you guys won't realize this, but I am not a spring chicken. And uh, 
we had uh, we had the Bay of Pigs going on at that time, and the young man I married was in the Marine Corps, and that's where he went. He went to uh, Guantanamo Bay and and did uh, what they did down there. And we were on a Marine base, and I had my first real freedom of my life. I not only had this husband, but he wasn't present. And so that bottle that he had shown to me became a, a real tool. Uh Drinking for me from the very beginning was uh, was aberrant and alcoholic in nature. I never got drunk. I heard somebody say uh, they never set out to get drunk. I never set out to do anything other than get drunk. Now, there was a lot of times, a lot of different things that uh, that I ingested through the years that I enjoyed the taste of, but I probably would have drank kerosene if I'd needed it. I, I always drank for effect, and... Uh, when that young man came back from uh, from Cuba, he had his own issues and his own problems. And uh, my behavior was so aberrant. I don't know how the military is today, but in those days they didn't put up with a lot. And we couldn't stay there with my bottle, so he couldn't very well quit his job. And I left. I went back to the West Coast and uh, and got on with my life. Uh, about that time, Vietnam was gearing up, and during that period, there was a lot of excitement going on. I uh, I went to San Diego. We had a lot of battleships coming in and out of San Diego, and fighter jets flying in and out of San Francisco, and there was activity, and there was a lot of booze flowing. And uh, so I met whoever was next, and we drank together. We uh, We just moved right on through it. I thought he drank like I did. I guess he did. Uh, it's a long time ago, and, and it's hard really to remember how other people are or what they do. I was listening to Chet talk about the, the three changes in the Al-Anon meeting. Isn't it wonderful that the only person I have to fix is me? You know, we know when our meetings are going to be, but then we don't have to go out and buy all that literature on fixing other people. And I'm sorry. No, God, God bless the Al-Anons. God bless them for loving us and, and, and staying with us. I, uh, forgive me. Uh, I don't tell that story about the fire, though. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I stayed married to him for a, for a while, and he was going back and forth to uh, Vietnam. He was on a transport. So that was real good. We, we could drink real good when he was in town and then he'd be gone and, uh, you know, we could get over whatever the battles were. When he'd come back, we'd drink a little while and then we'd go to war and then the Navy would intercede and send him away. And, and so we managed to stand each other for, I don't know, a few years, two or three. And finally, uh, he came back and, and got what they call shore duty. Oh, you have no idea. They come home every night. And, uh, you know, my mother told me at one time, if you wash your, their socks, you got them for life. And I didn't understand have anybody for life. I didn't understand stay anywhere or do anything for long. So that, that did not work out much longer. And I moved on to whoever was next. And whoever was next was, uh, was a whole different ball of wax. Uh, he did some things that, that I had never been exposed to before. And he showed me a lot of brand new, brand new things was a hell's angel and uh, he he kept me uh supplied with with a lot of of uh, substances that that i had not previously encountered and in that period i did not drink a whole lot 
I became addicted to heroin, and, and I was incarcerated for that for a couple of years. I, uh, I got very, very sick. Now, in the 60s, they called that treatment. Uh, a treatment in the 60s was not like it is today. You didn't play volleyball till your insurance ran out. It just, it just didn't work like that. Uh, back then, uh, on the West Coast, they put you on the other side. They put females on the other side of the women's prison. And, uh, we had gun turrets and, and razor wire and, and everything that, that you've got in a maximum security prison. They put us in group therapy for one hour a day besides the rest of the program, and so they, they uh, called it treatment. They didn't have a whole lot of success. The probably single reason that I didn't have to go back is because I'm an alcoholic. And uh, so when I got out of there, I, I knew that I could legally drink. I didn't need to do that stuff. I was clean. My system was clean. I didn't ever have to do that again, and therefore it never called me again. But alcohol is different than that. Alcohol is mental, physical, and spiritual in nature. And just because it's not in me does not mean that I'm not about that. I will always be an alcoholic. And I didn't know that back then. I didn't understand that. All I understood was that I could go into any bar legally and sit down. If I had the money to pay for it, I could buy anything I wanted to drink. And in this country, they will let us drink ourselves to death. And nobody will really stop us unless we run over them or break the law. Now, that's real scary to me now. Back then, I thought that was my right. I earned the money or I got the money. And uh, so I could drink if I wanted to. And uh, and that was what I did. I, I came out of that institution and went to live with my father, the practicing alcoholic. Now, he... I lost my father a couple of years ago, and uh, he never did stop drinking. But let me tell you, he was real proud that I did. He was real, real proud of me. And, and in my entire life, I was almost 50 when my dad died, and he had never once looked me in the eye and told me he was proud of me. And uh, toward the end, he said, I am so proud of what you do with your life. Now, that's a blessing. That's one of the gifts you get from this thing that uh, you can't buy it. You sure can't. They don't sell it over there at the at the little curio shops. So I stayed with Daddy and his wife and little kids for a for a little while, and I created so much havoc in their lives that they couldn't have me there anymore. You know, we do a lot of destruction along the way, and I certainly did damage to everybody who ever loved me or reached out to me. I really ran roughshod through people. So they had to ask me to leave, and. Uh, so I just went off with whoever was next, and which is all I knew to do. I was I was bred to be taken care of, and uh, it was a long time before I knew I had any responsibility for myself or my actions. Well, whoever was next, and I got married, and we had a little girl, nice little girl. She yeah. Uh, she's here with us this morning. Her husband drove her 600 miles to spend this morning with me. And uh, and I'm real glad that she's here. There was a time in our lives when we weren't able to talk to each other at all. I uh, I stayed with him for uh, a few years, and he really drank exactly like I did. We were drinking buddies. And uh, I got more aberrant, and I got sicker and sicker and sicker. 
and believed that I was a good mother. Let me tell you, we we do not see ourselves clearly when we're moving through this. Anybody who isn't uh, isn't here a long time, anybody who's new and and are starting to feel all that that guilt come down on them. You know, when we first get the alcohol out of us, there's so much that comes to us, becomes becomes clear to us, and we think we're so bad. Let me tell you what, I was the best mother my disease would let me be. And today, that's still true. Now, today, that's a better mother than it used to be. But all my life, I was the very best that my disease would allow me to be. I uh, I got real aberrant, real outrageous. Started wrecking a lot of cars. Just, just um, was going to jail. Sometimes I was... I was in jail for plane drunk. Sometimes I was in jail for uh, drunk driving. Back in, in the late 60s and early 70s out on the West Coast, you could get drunk and go to jail a whole bunch of times. It wasn't like it is now. The uh, first thing they did was they sort of uh, broke it down to reckless driving. Then they, then they gave you uh, kind of a step system. Well, I got all the way through all the steps. I mean, I <laughs> I went all the way through the steps. I, I wrecked all the cars. I went to jail for the weekends. I went to jail for two weeks. I lost the licenses. I did everything. I did everything that was possible to do. And finally, I, I since, since this husband was not a, a body and fender man, I guess he just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't stand the repair bills anymore. So uh, he uh, he went his way. And for a while, he let my daughter stay with me. Uh, I always maintained that that court let her stay with me. The reality was that had he not allowed it, it would not have happened. But now I could drink like I wanted to. There wasn't anybody around to tell me what to do. So I would uh, I would get uh, this husband and his girlfriend to take care of my little girl. And... Uh, I'd go off and drink, and sometimes I wouldn't come back when I was supposed to. Sometimes I was in jail. Sometimes I just didn't know. Sometimes I just didn't remember. And uh, it, they put up with it for a while. I remember one one incident. Uh, I worked evenings, and I would get off about 9 o'clock, and I'd stay drunk. As I stayed drunk. And uh, my little girl was not going to her daddy's that day. She got on the school bus and came home. And the neighbors saw her sitting on the porch, and it was after dark, and told her that she should come in their house. And she was about eight years old, maybe, maybe eight. And she said, uh, she said, I can't do that because my mommy won't know where I'm at when she comes home. Her mommy didn't come home until the bars closed. Finally, somebody insisted they take her inside. I doubt that could happen today because HRS would have had her away from her mommy a lot sooner. But uh, but that's real, real heartbreaking when you look back on what you do to people. And, uh, and it's a real blessing when they forgive you. It really is. A short time later, I, uh, I decided I would make a career change because my problem was all the skies. And my problem was uh, all those customers. I was in the restaurant business, and I was tired of people abusing me. And my problem was I didn't make enough money. And my problem was if my husband had behaved better and stayed, uh, you know, at monogamous, then uh, 
then none of these things would have happened, and my little girl would have had a nice, stable home. And uh, completely disregarding that that had never been true previously, but but it was it was everybody else's fault. And so I decided that I would, uh, with my driving record, go to truck driving school, <laughs> and uh, and and do something that I was uniquely qualified to do. I was going to drive a truck. I I just can't believe the way that I thought. So I did that. Now, all my drunk driving had been out on the West Coast. And in those days, we did not have a national computer hookup. So things kind of operated in little two and three and four state compacts. And everybody in every area of the country didn't know what you did somewhere else. So now I'm in uh, I'm in Georgia when I'm going to go to truck driving school, and they don't know anything about me. And I've got this driver's license in uh, my maiden name now. I've got to tell you, I had a lot of names. <laughs> so, so anyway, I uh, I went to school, and I did real well. I'm I'm qualified to do that. And I graduated from that, and I was going to go to work. I had a couple of jobs that were just four and five states, and uh, and then I wanted to go to work over road. I wanted to see the country and have freedom. See, I always felt like where I was wasn't where it was at. Where where I wanted to be was where it was at, and it didn't matter whether it was the next town, the next state, the next job, the next husband, uh, the next drink. Whatever was next was going to be was going to be uh, better. My friend from uh, from Winter Haven says that, and I identify so strongly with it. It was always what was going to be next. So if I could get on the big road, I would always be going toward what was next. I went to this uh, this trucking company, and I applied for work. And I was younger then, and I was real cute, and I batted my eyes, and the safety director liked me. But I didn't have any real overroad ex- experience. Excuse me. So... He said that if I would accept a training driver, he would hire me. And uh, I thought that was okay. I, I would have probably done anything I needed to do because this is what I wanted to do. And any time I wanted to do something, I didn't let a whole lot get in my way. Now I'm, you know, I, when I drank, I had all the self-confidence in the world. So this person was coming into town, this training driver, and I was supposed to go down to the yard on uh, on a Saturday morning and meet him, and, and he was going to decide whether or not he was willing to take me. And I drove on the yard, and, and he was out there by uh, talking with the safety director and by his truck, and I saw him. And I doubt that any of you ladies can identify with this, but when I looked across the yard at him, his sickness sort of leapt up into the air and came out and gathered mine in. And I knew before I ever spoke a word to this man that this was going to be my next husband. I knew that. I knew that. Uh, There was no doubt in my mind he was going to take me with him. Of course he was. So I met him, and uh, he told me all about what I was going to have to do to, uh, to get in his truck. And I said that would be just fine, and uh, and we did the paperwork, and I got hired, and we went to California that evening. And three weeks later, we we went to California. We made a round to New York. We made some other other stops. Three weeks later, we were back in Alabama at the yard, 
And uh, we got married. Of course we got married. Certainly we did. You know, I, hey, nice girls don't sleep around. You, you have to get married. And uh, over and over I had to do that. I will tell you that, that I also also take red ships are for that and I have not had to marry anybody since November of 1980. <laughs> now if that isn't better. <laughs> so we uh we really had a sick relationship. Uh this man did not drink. This was one of the things that he shared with me when he was interviewing me for my position, he informed me that he did not drink, and I thought, well, you know, that's that's jam up. This is the biggest, ugliest, meanest man I have ever seen in my life, and he don't drink. Betcha he can stop me. Because, you know, I had figured out by now, I didn't know I was an alcoholic, but it had, it had occurred to me that I might not want to drink quite so much, quite so often, and, and you know, the headaches and the... And the I heard a lady say in a meeting recently, uh, one of the guys was talking about puking, excuse me, and uh, she said, she, she was not an alcoholic, she comes with her husband, and she says, I don't understand why you people use that word. She says, doesn't anybody ever say throw up? It's so much more dignified. And I looked at her and I said, uh, actually, y'all probably do throw up, but we puke. <laughs> and, and, uh, and we do. And and I did a lot of that. I I just was tired of being sick all the time. And I thought this guy could, he was the answer. He was going to heal me. And I could get rid of all those other guys and all that other stuff, and, and, and I'd be okay. I started to uh, to get in trouble with my driver's license. First, I started to get a lot of speeding tickets. So I had to go back to the, to the uh, cycle of changing my name, getting a different driver's license in a different state, moving, moving, moving. And uh, I was running out of I was running out of hope there. Uh, occasionally, he would leave me home in whatever town we were in. I, I might let you know this this man not only was a, uh, a truck driver, he was a career criminal, and uh, he had been everywhere and done everything to everybody. Uh, he's in federal prison now. Uh, he he was he, he was a perfect candidate for my last husband. And so he'd been in a lot of trouble, and he did a lot of moving. And that really worked for me. That was real valuable for me, that he always was ready to move on. That played right into my sick needs. And uh, excuse me. so occasionally he would leave me at home, and I would get drunk. Now I'm becoming, and I heard one of the speakers say this weekend, you know, that he had become a periodic. He used to be a daily drinker. I became by necessity, a periodic, and that meant that I drank every period that I had the opportunity. It, uh, uh, he, you know, if he wasn't there breaking my arm to take the bottle away, then I drank, and I kept him hid all over the place, of course, and uh, and I would stay drunk all the time that I was in off the road. He, uh, <clears throat> he was a pretty violent guy, and uh, drunk or sober, he was violent with me, but when I drank it incensed him. And uh, and so he did a lot of physical damage to me through time. And uh, I started to wreck cars when he would leave me home. I started to wreck cars. Well, now, we had a little boy. We'd been married about, uh, I don't know, a couple of years, and we had a little boy. And 
so we just took him on the on the road with us. He he stayed on the road with us till he was six years old, and occasionally he and I would stay home. One particular uh, weekend, I had stayed in, and Larry had gone to the West Coast, and so I put my little boy in a daycare center, and of course went out and got drunk. And I was heading to the to the daycare center to pick him up. Time was about up, and I needed to get there. And I was running a little late, and I was making a left turn, and I must have blacked out. I I did not complete the turn. I hit a telephone pole, and when I did that, I took out the entire passenger side of the vehicle, and uh, the uh, the child seat was over there, and it was uh, it was crushed. You you couldn't even see it. It did not occur to me at that time that if I had gotten to the daycare center and picked that child up that he would be dead. Didn't even, didn't even enter my consciousness. I just, uh, was, was a little disturbed that they wanted to put me in jail. I was pretty bruised up and I thought they ought to patch me up and let me go home and go to bed. And they didn't. And I had to go to court and, and do all those things. By this time we were living in Arkansas. And, uh, they did not take my license yet. I pled not guilty, and uh, so I had to wait for for court time, and I went out and drank some more, and, uh, excuse me, I got got drunk a couple of weekends later, and it was about time for my husband to come home, Uh, but he wasn't due home for two or three days, so I went uh, to my house, my little boy was was there in his room asleep, and I was wiped out and went to bed. There was no damage in my house. There was nothing going on. There was no partying. There was no other people. There was no disturbance there. I was in my bed, and I was drunk, and I was quiet, and I wasn't asleep, but I was I was still, and he came home unexpectedly. When he uh, would come in and I would be drinking it, it would just incense him, and and he would start to uh, rage. And um, I argued and fought back and did what we do when we drink, and and I could be pretty mouthy. And the violence broke out, and he hurt me real bad. He he seriously assaulted me, and he left. And then I think he was concerned that I would die because I was I was bleeding a great deal. And uh, when he went away, and he came back and he saw that I was maybe not going to make it, so he took me to the emergency room. And uh, he took me in there. He told those people that I had been beaten up in a bar fight. And then he left the state. He got in his truck and he went away. And I share that not because of the... Uh, dramatic nature of it drama has nothing to do with alcoholism but because we have no credibility when we drink and i always try to try to let people know that 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 that's what happens to us internally i was in that hospital for a couple of days before anybody believed me when i told him what happened to me i believed him he wasn't drinking he was cold sober and talked just as sane as your grandma and went away and there I was and I was drunk and it it took a couple of days for me to even get detoxed why would they believe me and they didn't and uh, it was a while I would like to say that my drinking stopped there but it didn't I left that hospital with the staples in me somebody else's blood in my veins and I went right back out and I drank again 
right back out. I, uh, I still didn't get it. I didn't get that it was the alcohol. It was him. He was a bad guy. He was mean. He was vicious. And if it wasn't for him and if he would just go away and leave me alone, everything would be okay. How many times have we all said that? If they would just leave me alone, everything would be all right. It was never me. I had no responsibility for my actions. I, uh, I was drinking a short time later. Uh, I was out in the bars drinking. I like to drink out, and I like to roll when I drank. I never wanted to drink long in the same bar I was in. When I got real drunk, I wanted to move to the next one, wherever that was. And uh, he had come home, and he always bought me big cars. I guess he thought that I needed a tank to drive around in. I don't, I don't know. But we had a, a big Cadillac, and, and those older ones were real heavy. And he had, uh, he had just paid the last payment on it, as a matter of fact. He gave me the grocery money. He gave me cash for groceries. And he took our little boy home, and I was just supposed to go to the grocery store and come home. And I went out, and I, and I got real, real drunk. And I drove that Cadillac off a, off a cliff. This was by the Arkansas River, and uh, if any of you have ever been up there, that's a that's a transport river. They float barges down it, and it's real deep right from the bank. Uh, when I went over that cliff, it was a long way down. The highway patrol said that uh, there were no skid marks. I never tapped the brake. I never saw the, the cliff. Uh, when I got to the bottom... I remember being airborne. I don't remember landing. I, don't, I have no recollection of, of stopping. But I have a recollection of coming to. And I was looking straight into the water. The, the car had uh, hung on something, an old tree trunk or something. And so it was rocking, but it wasn't sliding. And I was terrified. That water looked like ink. And I have a real fear of not being able to breathe. That's that's one of my That's one of my fears I guess I have not overcome. I still get deathly afraid when I cannot breathe. And so drowning is, is an idea that terrifies me. And uh, I was looking down in that water, and I was sure that that car was going to go in there, and I was going to drown. And this Cadillac had electric door locks and electric windows, and the doors had been bashed in going down. So I couldn't get the doors open. couldn't get the windows down because I couldn't get the car started. And I didn't have the strength to kick anything out if I could have gotten out of the seat. And I thought I was going to die down there, and I was deathly afraid. I, I don't know that I've ever been that afraid. Uh, I, I laid on the horn a little while, and, and I didn't, you know, didn't believe anybody even knew that I was down there. And I started to pray. And it was the first time that I had ever sincerely asked God to help me not drink. Uh, I, I listened to someone who said so. The most sincere prayers we pray are those that we pray at the bottom of those cliffs and in those jails and, and when we are, are desperate and don't discount those prayers. I, uh, I, was, I was real, real ready for God to help me, whatever I had to do, whatever it took. But see, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that all I had to do was come to AA. I still didn't understand that part. Well, the police came. They got me out of there, and I went through the through the deal with the uh, with the jail and the court and, and all the, the what-have-yous and, uh, and the husband. And, and, and I didn't drink again. And that was 1985 in December, December 13th. I had my last actual drink of alcohol. 
And I went to church. I I started going to church every time they would unlock the door. And I wore out the carpet around the altar, and I prayed that God would, would relieve me of the compulsion to drink. I didn't call it that. I didn't know that's what it was. I knew that, that my mind was real sick because all I thought about was drinking. I was afraid to have a dollar in my purse because I knew that, that I would stop somewhere and drink. And uh, I would I would race home and, and just be out of breath and hide in the bedroom. Or I'd go in the first... Walmart or drugstore or, or places that didn't have a thing to sell that I wanted and spend all the money in my purse for fear that I would stop at the next bar. I went on like that for almost five years, and I was so insane when I got to you all that it is, oh, it's a miracle that I even even got here, that, that I have any cognizance at all. I was a real, real sick lady. I uh, I give the church the credit for keeping me physically alive because I would have taken my life had I not been involved with the people in my church that that at least supported me. But I got worse and worse and worse. See, I couldn't find God there. I kept looking and looking for God, and he was already here. And uh, I, when I hear people talk about that, we're out there looking for it, and it's already here. That's that's how it was for me. I searched and I and I begged and I pleaded and nothing was happening. Uh, way back, 32 years ago, in the San Diego County Jail, I went to my first AA meeting. I was 19 years old, and I went to the AA meeting because they let you out of the cell, and those nice little ladies talk real nice to you. And it's somewhere else, and, you know, I always wanted to be somewhere else. I was in jail that weekend for playing drunk on the streets of San Diego. A little old lady handed me a half a cup of coffee, and I did not understand the connotation of the half a cup. And I was sitting on my hands, and I was jerking around, and I was a wreck. There was a lady in that jail at that time, and I did a number of weekends in that jail, and this little lady was often there doing 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and her name was Noreen Hurley, and I'm sure she's gone on now, but she was what an alcoholic looked like. She had white hair. Every time I saw her, her skull was bashed in some way, and her eyes were black, and she was a little short uh, Irish lady with, with just beautiful, clear blue eyes after she'd been in there a few days, and they cleared up. And, and she talked about uh, making a run and, and going and having to get more alcohol, and the law got her. And it was never, it was never her. And I believed that that was what an alcoholic looked like. Never occurred to me that I had alcoholism. A few years later, out there on the West Coast, one of my one of my drunk driving episodes, I was court ordered to AA for 90 days. I went, or 90 meetings. I went, but I didn't go in time. They gave me six months to do 90, 90 meetings. I was coming up on the last, probably the last 20 days, making three meetings a day because I didn't go when I was supposed to. And when I did go, I didn't hear. I didn't listen. I didn't pay any attention. And sometimes I went drinking. A lot of times I went drinking. So I didn't, I didn't get the message inside me. People were trying to give it to me, and I did not get it. I I remember one meeting out there in Venice, California. It was a young girl, beautiful young girl, and uh, 
she was blonde and she was she was just lovely and she out there they stand up at the podium when they share they don't sit down at the table and she got up and she walked over to the podium and she had come around just about the time that I I came to visit the meetings and and uh, she stood up and she looked around the room she'd maybe been four or five days just enough days to clear her eyes up a little and she said she said I can't do this by myself I really need some help with this. And what I did was I looked around the room at the faces of all the men sitting there, and I thought, boy, now there's an angle. <laughs> and uh, I had to go out and drink about 20 more years. When I came in, I wanted help. I wanted to be helped. I didn't care what they told me to do. It made no difference to me. I would do whatever was suggested. You know, I didn't like the word direction when I got here. I've got a friend that talks about you got to take direction, and I really hated that. But I had no direction when I came, and anything that they told me to do was better than what I was already doing. If it didn't work, I could always change it later, but certainly everything that I was already doing was not working. So uh, when I came around, it was it was real important to just let somebody tell me to do something because I was real, real scattered. I uh, Before I came to AA, during the church period, I had the opportunity to go back to school. I didn't get any education because I was almost getting married. So I stopped going to school in the ninth grade. And I probably hadn't paid any attention in school since I was about 12. I had no education at all. I was very, very limited, almost illiterate. And I, uh, I took some GED classes, and I took a GED test when I was still in Alabama. And I scored well on the GED test, and they gave me a scholarship to the community college. Now, that was wonderful. I thought, God, now I'm going to be able to, to be like everybody else and at least speak plainly. You know, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, my vocabulary was so bad that I simply could pay attention to what was being said and repeat it because anything that I said was so inappropriate, I had no words to use. I couldn't talk to you respectably. I didn't know how. It it, it was so ingrained in me to to talk with, with that that vocabulary that I just was unable. Uh, when I when I went to school, I had to take a computer course. You know, these days in this in this era, you can't go anywhere without running a computer. In the era where I was born, everybody did not have a computer. Every three year old did not know how to program one. <laughs> and, and so they scared me. I, I didn't know how they worked. I didn't even know how they were powered. I thought it was kind of like television, you know. It sort of came out of the air. I just, I was real afraid of them. And I had to take this, this course. And so I, I was sitting in the back of the room. Of course, I always sat in the back of the room. You know, I didn't want anybody to notice me. And I would sit there and I would be panicked. And uh, well, when I got down here, I uh, I got my my first sponsor, and she told me that uh, that I had to I had to keep trying I had to keep listening that that I wasn't supposed to make any changes so I was already going to school, and so I needed to keep going to school 
I needed to not get married or divorced or quit school or, you know, give or take anything that I didn't already have. Uh, so I, I would go over to her house and I would sit there and I would say to her, I don't understand this stuff and I'm really, I'm really afraid I'm going to fail this course and they're not going to let me go to school anymore. And, and uh, she would say, uh, well, have you told anybody about that? And, and I would tell her, well, well, I'm telling you. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And, uh, and she'd been to college. She had an art degree. And, uh, and, and she said, well, I think what you need to do is you need to, you need to tell your teacher that you don't understand. And I said, uh, well, don't tell me that. Tell me what to do. And she said, I am telling you what to do. And I said, well, you need to tell me. You need to tell me. That's what, that's what you get the big bucks for. You know, you need to tell me. So she said to me, finally, she said, I don't know what you need to do. I don't understand computers. But your teacher does. And if you ask her, I'll bet she might tell you. Well, what a concept. Just go ask. So I, I went. And, uh, and I've been sitting in the back of this room for weeks now. It is almost the end of the term. My term project is due in like a few days. I have not started it. I, I'm, I'm pretending to key. I'm afraid to hit any buttons for fear I'll erase the world, you know, fire off a, a missile. I didn't know. I was so afraid of them. So I waited till every human being was out of the room, and I, uh, I went up there to her, and I skulked up there to her, said to her, uh, I'm really having a problem here. She said, well, how much... Where, where are you having the problem? Uh, how much have you got finished? And I gave her this blank printout, and she she smiled, and you know she wasn't one of us, but uh, but she had a program of some kind. She looked at me and she said, "We're going to have to approach this from a different place for you, Brenda." And uh, she sat down with me, and she she began to explain things to me like I would to a small child, and I understood. And uh, I got an A in that class. I stayed up all night a few nights getting that A, but I got an A in the class. But what I really got was I got the ability to ask for help when I needed it. I found out that it makes no difference what it is. If I just ask somebody that knows, there's always someone that knows. And and it's, it's not intimidating to me to not know anymore, you know. Information is everywhere, and there is no human being that has it all. But collectively, we have it all. And my sponsor says all the time, it's all right here. Everything we need is right here in AA. If we interact with each other, if we talk to each other, if we ask for help, we will be directed to the person with our answer. And uh, I learned, uh, God, what a concept. I learned that people go to school to find out things they don't already know. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know. So that's what I did. I found out some things I didn't already know. I uh, I kept coming to a lot of meetings. Came to a lot of meetings because the only time I wasn't in real pain was when I was sitting in an AA meeting. The rest of the time out there in the world was real, real difficult for me. I didn't know how to do things. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to talk to my kids. I didn't know how to 
uh, I heard a gir- girl say the other day, I didn't know how to get groceries home from the store and get them in the cupboard. You know, I didn't know how to function like like a civilized adult. Um, I was trying to get ready to come down here today, and and I was running around up there in the room, and I was thinking, God, am I ever going to grow up enough to know how to dress myself without asking somebody if it's right? I, it's all about growing up. I I just I never started to grow up. When I got here, I started. Now I'm, you know, I'm the new kid on the block here. But I guess that makes me about 21. And and at my age, that's not a bad deal. (laughs) And I feel 21 inside. I feel a lot younger than I did when I got here. I always knew I was powerless over alcohol. There, I don't believe from the very first time that it passed my nose and went across my lips that there was any doubt in me that I was powerless over alcohol. But now I thought I could manage. I genuinely thought that that if, if it just wasn't for all them guys, just wasn't for all those people bothering me, everybody telling me what to do, people have been telling me what to do all my life, I could manage just fine. My life was obviously unmanageable. I uh, I always knew about God. I always knew about God. I, I, my, my very, very ill and demented aunt was, uh, strong in a religious background, an aberrant religious background, but nonetheless, I knew about God. There had never been any doubt in my mind that there was a God. Uh, I believed when I got here that I had done so much wrong, so much damage, harmed so many people, so many ways, that God did not have the time to reach down here and straighten out my life. That God was not going to bother with me. He was going to bother with the more worthy. So, uh, when y'all told me that I could, I could decide on a God of my understanding, that I, I could decide that. I could visualize him however I chose to, and my God is, is masculine. I don't, I, that's just how I, I visualize him. But you told me that that didn't make any difference. It was mine. And how I understood was how I could interact. It was just important that I try to do that. A little at a time, I began to believe that God would always be with me. I finally came to believe that he always had been with me. I started to look at all the things that he had borne me through. And today I know that when when there is trouble in the world, in my world, in my personal world, that I am going through it. I am not in it anymore. There is no more get in trouble and be in trouble. Now Brenda is going through whatever situation it is. And because I know that, I know there's light on the other side and I know that it will pass. And I didn't understand that at all when I came here. Now about being restored to sanity, I think you probably have to have sanity before you can be restored to it and I'm not real sure that I ever had any but I do believe that today I have a degree of sanity as long as I continue to do what I'm supposed to do on a daily basis I can't just be powerless uh, in 1990 
and then move on and forget all about powerlessness. I get up every morning and I am powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable. And the God of my understanding will offer me as much sanity as I'm willing to do the right thing to get. I uh, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of that God as I understand Him. And my belief is that when I made that decision, I did not have the capacity to carry that out. I didn't know how to turn my life and my will over to God. I just wanted to. Sort of like when I walk into a meeting like this and everybody looks so beautiful and respectable and and rational. And I wanted to look like that, but all I could do was sit on my hands and shake out of the frame. Now, I wanted to look like y'all, and I wanted to behave like you, but I didn't know how, so I made a decision to find out how. I moved on through the rest of the operation, the the guide that tells me how to accomplish turning my life and, and my will over to God. And that's the rest of the steps. And I believe that I have to apply them constantly. I don't think we just take the steps and we're done. I think that we apply the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to our lives with whatever regularity we want to have peace and harmony with our fellow man. And uh, that's what I try to do. I'm certainly not perfect. I'm certainly not on top of it. And I certainly don't do it with the same uh, vigor every day. But the days that I really, really work at it, I have so much peace. I have so much harmony with with other people. And other people are what it's about. See, I I don't get a fax from God and I don't uh, I don't get a telephone call. He doesn't drop by and, and put a note in my mailbox. If I want to hear what God has to say, I have to come where God's talking. Now, I'm an earth creature. God made me a human being. He could have made me a plant. He could have made me sand. He could have made me water. But he made me human. And I think that means that he expects me to interact on a human level. He expects me to give and to receive from and with human beings. And so I think that's how he talks. I haven't seen any bushes burning and I haven't seen any seas parting in my lifetime. But I've heard you guys talk day in and day out, constantly at the tables, constantly around those never-ending coffee shops, constantly around that ice cream that's put all this weight on me. I keep, I keep hearing you share with me what God is putting in. And that's, you know, I pray forevermore to just be a channel. Just put into me what you would have me put out to my fellow man. And I believe that's what every one of us is. Just a channel for what God wants to get done. We're just a set of hands to do God's work and and just a mouthpiece to to say God's words. And um, so that's where I get it. If I don't interact with you, if I don't hang with you, if I don't listen to you, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. I cannot get it at home. I believe that uh, it's real important for me to clean house. Now, originally, when, when I started to uh, attempt a fourth step, 
I did not want to write that stuff down. I did not want anybody to see it. I, what if a burglar broke in my house and read that stuff? You know, well, you know, what about all those burglars out there in the bars that saw me do that stuff? <laughs> so I wrote it down. I carried it around in my handbag. You know, well, I had to keep it close to me. I kind of looked like the Queen of England with my little handbag clutched up here with my four steps. And I trotted around, and I didn't want to share anything. And I sure, sure didn't want you talking about me with each other when I left the room, because I thought that was gossip. I did not know that you had my best interest at heart. I thought that anything that you said about me was was uh, because you didn't like me, and because you were putting me down, and because you you uh, you were jealous. I don't know what I thought. It was just crazy. And uh, I never ever, ever trusted women, liked women, or had I, they didn't have anything I wanted. They certainly didn't. They had nothing whatever to offer me. Today, I am accompanied by a whole battery of them that I love dearly. They have saved my life. They gave me a life. They've showed me what living life is. I, uh, I really enjoy them. And they talk about me when I leave the room. And... Uh, and that's okay. That's okay. Because they see what's going on with me before I do. The reason they do is because I've let them know me. I have opened myself up to them. And I've showed them who I am all the time. Not just when I'm in trouble, call my sponsor. I show them on a daily basis who I really am, how I really am. And then when I'm doing something that's an old pattern or contrary to, to what my, my usual behavior is, they catch it before I do, and they talk about it when I leave the room, or they they talk about it in front of me like I'm not even there. <laughs> or, or sometimes, sometimes Mary just points her finger at me and tells me about myself, and I've come to be able to stand that. For a long time, I couldn't stand that. I was real thin-skinned. You know, we alcoholics are sensitive, and we do not suffer well, and uh, so I didn't I didn't like to be pushed around, didn't like to be told what to do. And I didn't like to be perceived as not knowing everything. God, I didn't know nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. And and I didn't want you to know that about me. Well, it took me a while to share that information that I was able to write down. And it did not come about in a formal way. It came about a little bit at a time, gradually. Uh, one night I was sitting on a kitchen stool and uh, and my dear, dear friend was ironing, and she started to ask me some things, just told me uh, to tell her about my moves. That's, see, this is one of my patterns, my running, my never-ending running around, and I believed when I got here that the 15 years I spent with my career criminal truck driver, aberrant, ugly husband, <laughs> was, we don't get over everything, uh, was, was was why I why I had moved so much, why I had ran so much, why I was like a gypsy and and had no job or no resume or no no roots. I thought it was his fault. I believed that it was it was him. When we started to talk about this, uh, we discovered, and this is really interesting because when I shared it with her, I had a uh, a lost period. I had forgotten a six year marriage to somebody that I didn't even include. Um, <laughs> Which I had to come back and, and share later. But that night, I shared with her 86 moves. 
86 times I had moved from one place to another, and I lived in the same house till I was 13 years old. Now, I didn't move 86 times, that husband. I, uh, I was a gypsy, and I had no resume, and I had no roots before I ever met him. He just, like I said, the aura was there. He fit my illness. He fit me. You know, I can do that today if I want to. I can look out here, and you know, I could stand here and take a deep breath, and I can pick out the sickest man in this room. I can do it. I'm not going to. I don't have to anymore. But it's still in there. It doesn't leave. We just kind of get a get a hold on it. We kind of let God work with it for us. So I I uh, I talked about the things that troubled me most. My most glaring defects of character were the ones that I was able to just scrape the surface with and share. And uh, that helped. That helped. I found out that they already knew most of that stuff. They'd already done most of that stuff. The women that I ran with that looked so clean and smelled so good and were so sweet and had those beautiful sparkling eyes had been everywhere I'd been. There were no surprises here. There are no surprises here. For anybody that's new, there are no surprises here. Absolutely. We listen to a a speaker a lot and he says, the only time that you need to be the sickest one in the room is when you're when when you're hearing a fifth step. The rest of the time, this is not a deal of can you top that. So, and, and I believe that. I believe that. I uh, I wanted God to relieve me of those defects. I wanted them to just go away. See, I thought y'all didn't have any. I I didn't. I I just didn't believe that that you still had trouble with your finances and your romances and your and your housekeeping and your and I, I and you raising your kids. I I really thought all of you had all of it together, and and if you knew too much about me, you wouldn't let me stay. So uh, I had to find out about you. I found out after a while that this isn't all just about me. This isn't, you know, we're all not going to sit around and just talk about me all the time. We've got to talk about you. We've got to talk about each other. We've got to hear about each other. Because the way that I learned that I can survive things is by hearing you all tell me that you have. Absolutely nothing has happened in my life that my sponsor does not know something about. I, It's incredible. It's, it's incredible to me. Uh, I hear people all the time talk about shopping for a sponsor. I know a guy who says he really wanted a guy with a three-piece suit and a, and a silk tie, and he got an old man in overalls. Well, I wanted a lady who had something I wanted. So I looked for one with a high-powered job and a Cadillac. And I got a little old lady who drives a Toyota and and is perfect for me. Perfect. She absolutely keeps me on the right track. She's taught me how to live. She's taught me how she's managed to live. She's shown me what she's done right that's worked. She's shown me what she's done wrong that hasn't worked. And I think that takes an extremely big person to to open up their life and their and their problems and their and their failings and their shortcomings so that I don't have to go there. 
There's nowhere else on earth but Alcoholics Anonymous where people are willing to do that. Lay down their ego so that I can grow up, so that I don't have to hurt. I pray a lot that God will relieve me of my defects. And the defects that I pray about today are not the ones I prayed about seven or eight years ago. Defects I pray about today are becoming a better person because I'm not sitting on my hands today. But don't kid yourself, I did. And and I'm not fighting to pass that bar today, but I did. And I could again. I could be drunk by midnight. I could probably be drunk by five o'clock. <laughs> but I choose not to. And the way to not do that is to listen to you guys, to come and share with you and, and allow you to share with me. I, uh, I don't know any other way that that gets done. I had to start to make amends. Uh, that list, that list that I never was going to do, and that list that I might eventually do, and that list that I could do. And a little at a time, I have, I have gone through many of my amends. And some of them, some of them I still haven't made. Some of them have still not been possible for me to make. But there's a real interesting uh, dynamic that, that goes to work there with the people that we hurt most, the people, the people that we take the money from, the bankers and the lawyers and the creditors. You know, they're real easy to work out. You just find a friend who's an accountant to show you how to pay your bills. I always worked. I just never kept a job and I never got the money out of the paycheck and into the hands of the people it was supposed to go to. I got a lady friend in Alcoholics Anonymous who's shown me how to do that. I, uh, I didn't have a lot of trouble with that. Once, that was like a just learning how. The people that we do the damage to are the people that love us, that loved us before, that, uh, that were there when we stomped through them and, and, and disturbed their lives and, and stepped all over them and used them and abused them and took from them and, and the more we did that, the worse we felt about ourselves. And the worse we felt about ourselves, the more we had to do that. And, and the point became that it was a cycle, it was a circle, and I couldn't get out. Most of those people have, have just been real grateful to see me lead a better life. To see me grow up a little bit and become a tax-paying, voting, insured person. I have car insurance and a legal tag on my automobile. I uh, I went to school again. I went to an academy and I entered the uh, the world of criminal justice. And I don't have a clue how this happened. It came to me. It, I was not going into the jails and prisons then with AA. I, I was always on the wrong side of the law, always on the wrong side of everything, always on the wrong side of everybody. And a, a dear, dear friend of mine, a military friend of mine, uh, somehow funneled me, uh, into this, this interview process, this interview board, and, uh, 
I went to this, this oral review and, and they decided that I was qualified to send to their academy and the state of Florida paid me to become a correctional officer in one of their prisons. And so I went to school and I learned to do that. And, and it's just amazing to me. Now I go into the jails and prisons today with AA, not the ones I work in, but, uh, I work in a maximum security close management men's prison. And the handcuffs, those handcuffs, those things that used to bruise my hands until I would take weeks with Neosporin to get them well, I wear them on my belt and I have a key in my pocket. I couldn't have done this. I didn't decide to do this. I didn't make a conscious pathway to do this. I believe I am where God wants me, doing what God wants me to do. And I'll be there until God has other plans. And uh, so I just keep suiting up and showing up. And it's interesting, the wreckage of our past that comes to us. Uh, I had been with the department for a while, and I had some wreckage from about 30 years ago that came to, uh, to light. And I had to go through some oral reviews, had to go through some paperwork. I had to spend a lot of time on my knees. And my sponsor, who is probably the wisest human being I know, she said to me, God has you where he wants you. If he wants you somewhere else, you won't be there anymore. As long as he has you there... You keep putting on that uniform and showing up at the gate just as long as they let you come. When they don't want you there, they'll tell you. Because I wanted to run. I wanted. I didn't want to face it. I didn't want them to know that stuff about me. I'd cleaned up and I, I, I looked like you all and I smelled good and took a bath every day. And, and, and I didn't want those people that I worked with to know about my past. So some of them had to know. Some of them had to know, and I had to sit down, and I had to talk about it. And uh, God worked it out. God worked it out in the most incredible way. Uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. And I still am with the Department of Corrections in the state of Florida today, doing whatever it is that God has me do for as long as he wants me to do it. I clean house regularly. I uh, I do that by myself, and I do that with others. Uh, I got a message on my voicemail the other day. My sponsor and I had gone somewhere, and we were talking about something in the car, and it was not a recovery-centered uh, issue. It was something out there about the news, and we were talking about it, and, and I had one point of view, and she had another one, and uh, and I told her three times that that was what the newscaster said, and she kept arguing with me, and I thought, well, that's pointless because she's going to win because she's been doing this longer than I have. And I shut up, and I went on, and two or three days later, I came home from work, and I checked my voicemail, and my sponsor says, Brenda, when you're wrong, promptly admit it. I was wrong. Da-da-da-da-da-da, and gave me the details of the situation, told me right back what I'd told her, that she had verified with somebody else with a better background, I guess, that she trusted more than me. <laughs> and that was it, and it was click, and put a dial tone in my ear. God bless her. She, uh, cause she practices 
the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous on a daily basis in her life. That's how I learned to do it. I didn't learn to do it from reading. I, I couldn't hardly read when I got here. I couldn't read one sentence and then read the next one and remember what the first one said. I, I had no cognizance. I, I, I couldn't take it in and understand the concepts. But I could listen to you all at the table tell me back what the book said and I could I could get a little of that. I have watched the ladies that came before me live the steps, apply the steps daily to their lives, and they've shown me how to do that. And that's all I was able to do, and that's what, what I have to keep doing. I strive for a deeper con... Forgive me. I strive for a deeper connection with God because I think... If I stay the same, if I get comfortable and I stay like I am, that I'll probably be going backwards. Uh, I don't think we'd be still in, in recovery at all. I think either we're going forward or we're going backwards. And uh, so I try to keep going forward and I try to get a little closer, a little stronger understanding. Uh, I understand all I'm supposed to understand today. And... Uh, my sponsor said recently about someone that uh, she was she was working with a new lady. She she was talking to her about the steps, and she said, "We both can read exactly the same words, but if you understand the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous the same way I do, there's something radically wrong with my program." And that's I believe that I believe that I. Uh, I think that that puts it in a nutshell. There's something else she says that I like to share about the uh, the connection with God, the understanding of God. I I had such a hard time joining hands, if you will, with, with a higher power. And I heard my sponsor say from the podium once, she said, when when I was growing up in a in a religious family religious background and everybody around me was in church and everybody around me was was extremely hooked into God and they kept telling me that Jesus died on the cross for me she said it made me feel so guilty and so bad about myself I didn't know why he did that I didn't understand why he would do that and I just felt worse all the time when they would tell me that when I got here and somebody told me that a lady died across town of alcoholism so that I wouldn't have to I understood what God was doing here I understood what God was doing in me now that's how I see God and that's how she gave him to me and gave him dimension and degree and I appreciate that very much because I had a lot of trouble with that Um, I am very, very involved with 12-step work as I see it. Uh, 12-step work to me is working with others. It's interacting constantly with others. It's, it's going where I need to go, to the jails, to the prisons, to the detoxes, to a lot of meetings because sitting in a meeting is, and sharing is 12-step work. But God bless the chairman, you know, the ones that set up the chairs, and God bless the coffee makers. And God bless all those people 
that makes sure that there's a meeting to go to when we get there. Because, you know, sometimes, sometimes my ego says to me, so-and-so doesn't do this the way you do it, Brenda. Wonder why they don't do this. It's because they're over there making coffee and setting up the chairs so I can do this. Everybody, everybody, every gift, every act is important in Alcoholics Anonymous. If there were any only acts of service, if there were any only ways to do this, there'd be an awful lot of things that never got done. There'd be an awful lot of things that went totally undone because everybody has a place and a job and a talent and a gift. And if we all just bring whatever God gives us and just put it in the quilt, and weave it in, we will have the most beautiful patchwork quilt in the world. Over two million of us here, right now, sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. And at any time, any time of the day or night, there are alcoholics joining hands around the world praying. Now that's pretty awesome. It doesn't matter that I'm powerless. We have power. There is real power here. Uh, as a result, of these steps, I have had a spiritual awakening, and I, I believe that just like it's written. I did not have the the bright light that uh, that Bill talks about. The, I didn't have that. I I did what I was told, and I do what I am told, and I follow the leader. You know, like they taught us in kindergarten: just follow the leader, just do what they're doing. That's working. Pick out somebody, Brenda, that's doing what you want to do. And then do what they do. If you want what she's got, do what she does. Now that's simple. That's simple. I had trouble understanding it. But but it's simple. And uh, because because I I tried to do that, I uh, am pretty happy and pretty joyous most of the time, and I am always free, and I was never free before. Thank you very much for letting me share with you this morning. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.